Hey friends, I'm Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Welcome back, my OOBTers. I'm so grateful that you've joined me here to dig into the pages of God's Word to open our Bibles together. How exciting that you tuned in today because I believe that you are here with me on purpose by our Heavenly Father who wants to speak to all of us through His words as found in the book of Exodus. With that said, let's dive right in because as I'm sure it's no surprise here, we have a lot to cover today. If you recall, we ended our last episode of OOPT with the combined voices of millions of Israelites joined with one another in a song of praise about their rescue from slavery in Egypt. At the end of chapter 15, we also witnessed God provide water for the Israelites in the wilderness, first at Merah and then at Elam. At Elam, the Israelites found a beautiful oasis to camp at and some much-needed rest as well. But, as we will soon read, they're going to once again resume their journey in the wilderness of sin which is related to the word Sinai in this particular usage. As they traveled toward Mount Sinai, we're actually only 45 days from God's miraculous rescue of them, and yet they're once again complaining and grumbling as they did at Merah. Oh, friends, I may as well just go ahead and say it now. The more I read about the Israelites and their many complaints in the book of Exodus, the more I realize that I am the Israelites. Ouch. More of that to come, though. Exodus chapter 16 in the New Living Translation begins, manna, and quell from heaven. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin, between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the fifteenth day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us out into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard your complaints against him. Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. There they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, In the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp, and the next morning the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? they asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, It is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, 
some only a little, but when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, Do not keep any of it until morning, but some of them didn't listen and kept it until the morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake and boil as much as you want today, and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So they put aside some till morning, just as Moses had commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good, without maggots or odor. Moses said, Eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. The Israelites called the food manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like honey wafers. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. Then later generations will be able to see the food I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Get a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. Then put it in a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant in front of the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. So the people of Israel ate manna for forty years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The container used to measure the manna was an omer, which is a one-tenth of an ephath. It held about two quarts. Okay, friends, how about we just dive right on in to some of the resources I came across to help us understand and process all that we see happening in chapter 16, shall we? The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible for chapter 16, verses 2 and 3 begins, It happened again. As the Israelites encountered danger, shortages, and inconvenience, they complained bitterly and longed to be back in Egypt. But as always, God provided for their needs. Difficult circumstances often lead to stress, and complaining is a natural response. The Israelites didn't really want to be back in Egypt. They just wanted life to get a little easier. In the pressure of the moment, they could not focus on the cause of their stress. In this case, lack of trust in God. They could only think about the quickest way of escape. When pressure comes your way, resist the temptation to make a quick escape. Instead, focus on God's power and wisdom to help you deal with the cause of your stress. Moving on. Day 35 of the Bible Recap begins. All these complaints against Moses are actually complaints against God. Moses knows this. He has a proper understanding of God's sovereignty and who is actually the provider here. Complaining reveals our view of God and His provision. God hears these complaints, but He doesn't punish the people for mistrusting Him. Instead, He promises food. Chapter 16 says the glory of the Lord appeared to them in the cloud. This was possibly some sort of luminescence in the cloud or something else distinct, just to remind them, in case they'd forgotten, 
that this is not just some regular cloud they're dealing with. He tells them that they'll have bread in the morning and meat in the evening. This bread from heaven was called manna, and though it's not clearly marked out in the text, this bread seems to serve a threefold purpose. It serves a practical purpose by feeding the people. It serves an eternal purpose by glorifying God and revealing His power. And it serves a spiritual purpose by testing the people and training them to trust God. Will they obey the rules He sets up for how and when to gather the manna? He says they're supposed to gather it every day except the Sabbath, which is a Hebrew name for the seventh day of the week, or what we know as Saturday. God's testing here addresses a lot of potential pitfalls. Will I have a scarcity mentality and try to hoard the manna, or will I trust that the food will be there again tomorrow morning? Will I be willing to work twice as hard gathering on Friday in order to rest on Saturday? Will the food I gather on Friday be enough to carry me through until Sunday morning? Will God keep His promise to provide for me if I stop to rest as He has commanded me? The Ten Commandments haven't been given to the people yet, but God has been hinting at this idea of resting on the Sabbath since creation, and He points to it again here. He reminds people that if they trust that He controls the forces of nature, their response will be obedience. And come on, how many times has He already proven to them that He controls creation? Most recently, six weeks ago in the Red Sea. Tara Lee continues, I loved seeing that God commands His people to rest, to trust Him to provide. These people have been slaves with no day off, not even for their animals. They were forced to work. It feels very unnatural to them to not strive and work. But here is just one more way God is showing them that He is the better God than Pharaoh. Pharaoh commands them to work, but God commands them to rest. He knows how unnatural it feels to us, how much our human nature longs to earn things, to feel accomplished. But the very nature of His relationship with us is one where we are the recipients, not the earners, not the doers. He is the doer. And he says it is done. This is the reason that Hebrews chapter 4 calls Jesus our Sabbath rest. His finished work on the cross frees us up to rest, to stop striving and trying to earn his approval and favor. There's a quote from Martin Luther that I love. When he was asked what he contributed to his salvation, he said, Sin and resistance. God himself has done all that he requires of us, and he invites us into his rest. And I want to learn how to rest in him. So good. In Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Study by Lisa Turkhurst and Joe Mutamali, in a section titled Provision Revealed in Manna, it reads, There's no desperation quite like the moment of realizing you're racing out the door, late for a meeting, and you hear your stomach growl. Yep, you totally forgot to eat breakfast. The frustration from the hurried pace of the morning, compounded with the pit in your stomach, leaves you feeling not just hungry, but hangry. Hungry and angry. The chaotic emotions we feel when we have physical needs demanding to be met leaves us feeling vulnerable and sometimes even desperate. While we may poke fun at our tendency to become hangry at times, these feelings of desperation from lack of physical supply are actually found in the Old Testament quite often. You see, for over 400 years in Egypt, God's people had been looking in many directions to get their daily needs met. They looked down at crops growing from the land. They looked out at the available livestock for meat and they looked at their Egyptian slave masters in order to be told when they could eat and how much they could eat. It seems like the Israelites were conditioned to look everywhere for their provision, everywhere except up. Looking down and around was the opposite of looking up to God. It was the opposite of trusting God to be their provider. So when God delivered Israel from Egypt and into the wilderness, those provisions and slave masters weren't there anymore. The Israelites were no longer slaves. They were technically free, but as long as their routines were chained to old habits, 
old thinking, and old activities, they wouldn't ever experience real freedom. And God was brilliant in working on the heart and mindset change they needed by using their most basic daily need, food. He took them out into the desert, where they would not be able to look down at the land or out to the herds or over to their slave masters to get their needs met. They would have to look up. Israel's food would come from him and him alone. He would rain down just enough bread each day to sustain them. They would have to develop a new daily habit, new thinking, and new activities in order to get their food. They were no longer slaves to a master in Egypt. They would have to learn to look to God for everything in the wilderness. But real transformation won't occur with just an external relocation. It requires a complete internal renovation. And isn't it interesting that God says He will use their basic need of food and His unique way of providing it to test and see if the people will follow His instructions? Like we said earlier, it can make us feel vulnerable to feel the emptiness of an unmet need. This story of bread from heaven or manna in Exodus is a gift. In fact, it was a gracious gift because it came in an unexpected way. Can you imagine seeing bread fall from heaven? This is Am interrupting here. Do you think that maybe it looked like a snowfall with those large snowflakes we sometimes get here in Kansas? And maybe even where you live? Who knows for sure, but definitely interesting to consider, am I right? Okay, back to Turkhurst and Mudmali. Also, manna was an opportunity. Every time the Israelites went out in the morning to gather the bread that fell from heaven, they were given the opportunity to look up to God and acknowledge Him as their provider. Doing this daily was crucial so the Israelites could develop new patterns of trusting God in both their thinking and their actions. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, we are reminded that the one in heaven who provides rain, which is essential for life to be sustained long term, is also the one who sends bread, which sustains life daily. The manna coming from heaven was the fulfillment of God's promise to the Israelites. His presence and provision in their daily moments of need was also intended to train them to expect God to intervene and act in the same way in their future needs. After 40 years of being in the desert and eating the manna from heaven that the Lord provided, the Israelites had a pretty good understanding of how the process worked. Six days of the week, the Lord would provide manna. However, there would be no bread on the seventh day, for it was the Sabbath. Instead, the Israelites were to collect a double portion on the sixth day, so they would have enough for two days. They were to not try to stockpile the manna. It was given to them daily, so they would remember to trust in God alone to provide for them. Then we get to Exodus chapter 16, verse 32. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omar of manna and keep it for generations to come, so they will see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. For years, the Israelites were not allowed to keep any extra manna, but now they were commanded to keep an omer, the exact amount of what was used for one's daily provision. We see something so sincere from God's heart in this request. He wanted His people to have something to remind them that He alone would always be their provider. Visual reminders are good for all of us. These reminders help us when we forget about all the ways God has been faithful to provide for us over the years. The manna in the Old Testament was intended to stir anticipation for a manna that would be eternal in nature. In other words, the manna of the Old Testament was an intentional symbol for intermediate provision until the manna from heaven came to bring true and eternal satisfaction. This is in fact the best kind of provision we could ever ask for, the bread of life, Jesus himself. In John chapter 6, verses 31-35, through Jesus declares himself as the bread of life. He makes a direct connection to Moses and the story of the manna in the wilderness. The Jews hearing Jesus, 
who were steeped in the story of the Old Testament, must have known this story well. Manna was the literal bread that saved their ancestors from impending death. Just as the ancient Israelites were taught to live in a 24-hour cycle of reliance on Yahweh to provide their bread from heaven, Jesus reminds us that there is something even better we can rely on for 24 hours a day. Himself. Jesus said it best. In John chapter 6, verses 33-35, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here are some final takeaways about Jesus as the bread of life and our ultimate provider. Trusting in Jesus as the bread of life grows our dependence on him for the daily bread we ask for. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he said, Give us this day our daily bread, in verse 11. The Greek word for daily can be best understood in this context as referring to the present, but also the days to come. So when we read Jesus' request for daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, we are invited to pray in hopeful anticipation for the future, but to also pray to be sustained by God's perfect provision in the present. When we remember Jesus is the bread of life and we pray for daily bread, we grow in dependence and trust in Him when life feels confusing. And when what we see in front of us isn't what we thought it would look like, even when we don't agree that this is good, we don't have to understand God to trust Him. Knowing Jesus as the bread of life creates an even deeper moment of meaning for us when we break bread during communion. In Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, Jesus is reclining at a table and tells His disciples to remember whenever they break the bread in communion that the bread is a symbol of His body. Jesus connects and completes the image of manna as provision for the people of God in the wilderness, as his own body will be broken as a type of provision for all of humanity, for all those who repent of their sins and turn to him. The people in the wilderness would wake up hungry and looking for bread the next day, but the person who remembers the body of Christ, broken for them, will be reminded of the fullness of sacrifice, and as Jesus said, they will hunger and thirst no longer. Remembering Jesus as the bread of life can comfort us in our own experience of lack and longing. God showed His faithfulness by sending bread from heaven. The people lived out their faithfulness and dependence on God by walking out every day and gathering the bread. They had a part to play. Sometimes I think we can easily neglect that relationships require responses from both parties. God always acts, responds, and reacts. The question is never about the faithfulness and action of God. It is and always has been about our willingness to respond and react to the goodness that God extends to us. Friends, the greatest goodness that God ever sent us, the most fulfilling provision we could ever experience, is Jesus. But where did Jesus come from? Heaven. As we've studied in the Old Testament, we have seen so many glimpses of Jesus. At times, we may have felt that these glimpses have been limited. Typically, when this happens, it is because our vision is blurred by factors such as trauma, relationship complications, betrayal, abandonment financial hardships, fear, anxiety about the world events, and our own skepticism. But God is building something we cannot even begin to fathom, much less see. We don't serve a do-nothing God. God is always doing something. Now, His provision may not be as obvious as we want it to be, or it may not come to look exactly like we expected. The Israelites certainly didn't expect bread to look like little sweet potato flakes falling from heaven, manna. And the timing of His provision may seem slow. We may see it in due time, or maybe not until eternity. During the 40 years the Israelites were in the desert, 
they didn't get the big, bountiful meals they wanted. That didn't come until they finally crossed over into the promised land. But God's provision was all around them each morning when the manna fell from heaven. The same is true for us. Jesus is all around us, providing for us on a daily basis. We can trust with certainty that whatever He gives us today truly is His good and perfect provision for right now. And whether that provision is what we want right now, or it's a part of a much bigger plan for our eventual good, it's still good. God is providing. Jesus is faithfully with us in all of our needs. We are cared for. That has been the pattern of divine provision since the beginning of time, and we can take comfort in the fact that this will never change. Oh, that's so good. Beautiful, really. Am I right, my OB tears? Continuing on, let's go ahead and read through both Exodus chapters 17 and 18 to then discuss them together. Exodus chapter 17 from the New Living Translation begins, Water from the Rock. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us, or not? Israel defeats the Amalekites. While the people of Israel were still in Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage, but whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder, and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. Exodus chapter 18 Jethro's Visit to Moses Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife Sephora and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. Moses' first son was named Gershom, for Moses had said when the baby was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. His second son was named Eleazar, for Moses had said, The God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and his people were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a message to Moses, saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel as he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I now know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods because he has rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. Jethro's Wise Advice The next day Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited for him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all Moses was doing for the people, he asked, What are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, Because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles a case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me, and let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to Him. Teach them God's decrees, and give them His instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. Then these men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. Soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, who returned to his own land. In a compilation of First Five's Exodus study and How Do I Get Through This study, it begins, Thirsty and Under Attack. These were the two major challenges Israel was facing as they set up camp in Rephidium. With no water around, grumbling quickly gave way to quarreling, and Moses feared he might be stoned, so he went to God for answers. God told Moses to take his staff, the same one used when God turned the Nile River into flowing blood in Exodus chapter 7, and strike it against a rock. Moses obeyed, and fresh water gushed forth, enough water for all the Israelites to be quenched and satisfied. But their satisfaction quickly dried up as the Amalekites showed up hoping to take them down in battle and plunder all the gold, silver, and articles given to the Israelites from Egypt upon their exodus. In Exodus 17, the Israelites went to war against the Amalekites, descendants of Esau, 
as found in Genesis chapter 36, verses 12 and 16. The Amalekites were nomadic descendants of Esau and were known to attack others for their wealth. They killed for pleasure and had plenty of battle experience. The Israelites had none. Their brutal assault on the Israelites was particularly heinous because they attacked from behind, killing women, children, the sick, and the elderly. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, God recalled their unrelenting cruelty and declared that the Amalekites would be forever wiped out. The animosity between the Israelites and the evil nomadic tribe persisted for generations. Moses told Joshua to choose men and fight. With the staff of God in his hand, Moses took Aaron and Hur to the top of the hill. When he held up God's staff, Israel dominated the Amalekites. But when Moses lowered his hands, the Israelites were overcome. As Joshua and his men look up during the heat of the battle, there is no doubt the staff of God evoked memories of God's deliverance through many miracles, as found in Exodus chapters 7, 8, 9, and 17. Moses' hands grew tired, so Aaron and Hur held them up until sundown. Some may think Moses' staff had special powers, but that's not the case at all. The staff was a symbol of God's sovereignty and divine presence with the Israelites. God was there during their times in bondage in Egypt and now present in their first battle in the wilderness. Israel defeated the Amalekites. Like the patriarchs before him, Moses built an altar. He called it the banner is my Lord, or Jehovah Nisi. So to say the Lord is my banner is saying a lot of things. God is victorious. I want to honor God's victory. I want to remind myself of what God has done. I want everyone to know that I belong to God. Giving God this name is an act of worship and praise, and it's also a personal statement Moses is making about his identity. Moses knew the battle wasn't won through human effort. The victory came by the power of God, Jehovah Nisi. He proclaimed the Lord as his banner because he identified his life with God's faithfulness, protection, and love. Let's remember this truth as well, my OBTers. The Israelites ended up in Rephidim because they followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. They were doing exactly as they were instructed. God knew what awaited them at Rephidim, no water, and the Amalekites, but he led them there anyway. God wasn't trying to discourage the Israelites or cause them any harm. God allowed these tough situations to happen so he could reveal his great presence, power, and glory to the Israelites. Are you following God's plan and still experiencing some tough circumstances in your life right now? If so, don't let the enemy deceive you into thinking that God is holding out on you or that he doesn't care. Remember what we've learned here and consider that you could be right on the horizon of seeing God's power and glory revealed in your circumstances, ultimately leading you to a great victory. So as the Israelites approached Sinai, Moses' wife and children joined him. He'd apparently sent them back to Midian for safety during the time of conflict with Pharaoh. With them came Moses' father-in-law Jethro, who, as we just read early on in chapter 18, is now a believer in the God of Israel. However, before we move on, I feel it is important to note and attempt to grasp even that Zephora and their sons have been with Jethro for some time and are just now being reunited with Moses in this chapter. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for Moses to send them away for their safety, but also how hard for any of them to know if one another is safe and still alive even? How hard it was for Moses to not have them nearby as support and encouragement through all these things. The plagues, including the Passover, the Red Sea, and even now in the daily struggle and the logistics of moving millions of people through the wilderness. Gosh, that's tough. What a beautiful reunion this must have been. We do also see that Moses had a heavy responsibility in leading the people and dealing with their troubles, and Jethro soon saw that it was wearing him out. 
Up till then, the people brought all their disputes to Moses, and they accepted his decisions as the laws of God. Jethro suggested that the time had come for a more organized system to be put in place, with responsible men appointed to assist Moses. They could look after the simple everyday cases, leaving only the more difficult cases for Moses. This would relieve the pressure on Moses and at the same time benefit the people, for they too were becoming worn out because of the long delays and waiting for cases to be heard day in and day out. Moses saw the value in Jethro's advice and put them into practice. A few resources even suggested this was the beginning of our judicial system. So now that the others were to assist Moses in judging the people, a set of laws became necessary. The judges needed some recognized standard if they were to give fair judgments. God, therefore, is about to give them the Ten Commandments. However, we're getting ahead of ourselves in all this Ten Commandment talk as we won't be studying about those until chapter 20 in the book of Exodus. Please hold. (laughs) Before we do move on, though, let's lean in a bit more to Jethro's advice to Moses in chapter 18. I don't know about you, but Jethro's words found in verses 17 and 18, which read, This is not good. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Those words, they seem to land somewhere deep in my heart and mind. Don't go it alone, Moses. Don't go it alone, Em. Do you feel the weight of that reminder too, my OOB tears? Oh my. Listen in to these thoughts from Bible.org's Exodus Birth of a Nation section on Jethro's advice as found in verses 13 through 27. The next morning, Moses and the people of Israel began their daily routine. The people who sought to know God's will from Moses began to line up in the designated place, perhaps just outside Moses' tent. With a nation composed of nearly 2 million people, 600,000 men, as referenced in chapter 12, verse 37, one can imagine that the line was long and that it began to queue up very early in the morning. Moses, we are told, seated himself, sitting as Israel's sole judge. The people came to him with all those matters which needed a decision, instruction, or counsel. The people looked to Moses alone for a word from God, for guidance in their lives. At the end of the day, a long line of waiting Israelites was still there. The people were weary from standing all day, and so was Moses. Jethro was able to quickly identify the problem, to which, it seems, Moses was oblivious. While Jethro quickly sized up the situation, Moses wasn't thinking very clearly about what he was doing. His response reveals several misconceptions regarding his role as a leader. Consider them with me for a moment. 1. Moses believed that every request for his help made the matter his responsibility. When asked why Moses handled matters as he did, Moses responded in effect, I am doing this because the people have asked me to. I believe that Moses was a kind, caring, and compassionate man. I believe that the Israelites felt this way as well. No wonder they wanted to take their problems to Moses. Moses found it hard to refuse to help anyone who asked for it. He simply fell into the trap of assuming that every need which he became aware of was his responsibility to meet. If you have not learned so already, you will discover that we will always be aware of far more needs than we can personally meet. Moses was running himself ragged because he had not yet come to grips with his error. Burnout was on the horizon. 2. Moses seemed to assume that because people came to him personally for help, it was his responsibility to help them personally. In answer to Jethro's question, Moses explained that he judged the people from dawn to dusk because they came to him for help. Moses assumed that when there was a need, it was his personal obligation to meet it. In effect, Moses was not really leading at all, for he was unwilling to refuse any appointments or to involve others in meeting the needs of the Israelites. Whoever wanted to speak to Moses and was willing to wait in line to do so could speak with him. Number three, Moses wrongly reasoned that because his task was to lead the entire nation, 
he must do so by dealing with people one at a time. It did not seem to occur to Moses that he not only could, but must handle his task on a larger scale, dealing with groups rather than individuals. Rather than to teach a class of 100, which would have been a small class in that setting, Moses was teaching the same thing 100 times to 100 people. Number 4. Moses seems to have assumed that no one else was able to do what he was doing. Moses told Jethro that the people came to him to seek God's will. It seems as though this placed the needs of the people in a category for which only Moses was able to give an answer. Number 5. Moses seems to have lost sight of his unique gifts and calling. God had not called Moses to do everything, but to do some things. Moses was given responsibility to lead the nation of Israel as a whole, and thus his task was very different from that of others, who could deal with people on a personal, intimate, and one-on-one basis. There is one way in which all of us have been directly affected by the advice which Jethro gave Moses centuries ago. I did not think of it, but a friend of mine did, and he shared it with me as we were discussing this text. He pointed out that Jethro's advice was probably directly related to the writing of the Pentateuch by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. This is a great literary work, not to mention its status as divine revelation. The writing of the Pentateuch was Moses' implementation of Jethro's counsel. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 20, it read, Teach them the decrees and laws, and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. The way Moses was consumed by his duties as judge, he would never have had time to write the very chapters in which we have studied, and from which we can learn so much. How directly we have benefited from Jethro's counsel to Moses. Millions have been blessed because of the change which Jethro's visit brought about in the life of Moses. Wow! For sure we can see how God used this encounter between Jethro and Moses to move him in the direction of the next stage of his God-given calling, writing the books we are studying today. Amazing. Just amazing. So as we are closing out our time together today, let's take a moment to consider where we have been so far as we journey through the pages of God's Word in Exodus chapters 1-18, through including some thoughts from me and also a few shared by Jen Wilkin near the end of her God of Deliverance study. First, my thoughts. I hope you have been so impacted by this first half of Exodus that you aren't able to put it down, friends. Truthfully, I don't really know how you're feeling about the first half of Exodus right now, but I do hope that you can't wait to read the rest. So I hope you will come with me through Exodus chapters 19 through 40 when we resume our studies in Exodus in January of 2024. As I mentioned earlier in today's episode, the story of the Israelites is our story too. Jen Wilkins shares in the God of Deliverance study, This is telling a true story. The one true story. There is an I am, and it's not me. But that I am looked down and heard my groanings. He saw and heard and remembered and acted. And that I am, he toppled all my idols. He rescued me from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light. He led me through the door of the Lamb of God's blood at Passover. Lovingly and tenderly, he washed me with the waters of baptism at the Red Sea. My sins were drowned. My old life was gone. Cut off. No more. He led me into the wilderness to test me, that ultimately my faith might prove as gold. He sustains me with daily bread that is the bread of life. He quenches my thirst with living water. He grants me rest for my soul. He turns my eyes toward the promised land. This is the true story. Anyone who has found their way into it knows that it is true and that the other stories are false. We should be able to tell it to the coming generations that we might fear God more than Pharaoh in everything we do and we might render to Him the worship that He is due. 
and that all the world would know that Yahweh is God alone. Yahweh delivers us. With all that said, please join me in prayer with Jen Wilkin in the God of Deliverance study. It seems to sum up our time together today perfectly. Thank you, Father God, for this story of deliverance. You are a God who sees and hears and remembers and acts. You are a God who rescues and delivers. We thank you that you do not leave us in slavery, but you deliver us into freedom. And then you show us how to live. Lord, we find ourselves in the wilderness of testing, and we ask that you would train our eyes on the promised land. Teach us to store up treasures in heaven and to trust you for our provision here today. Help us to seek your will that we might grow in holiness and reflect Christ by whose blood we have been set free. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we officially end our time together today, I wanted to share with you that up next is a celebration. Yep, you heard that right. Be sure to join me for the next episode as we throw some confetti in the air for Open Our Bibles Together podcast's 50th episode plus second anniversary. Both do occur at the same time, and for that reason, I have a special treat in store for you, my OOB tears. I can't wait to celebrate these milestones. Together, of course. (laughs) After that, we switch our focus to the upcoming holiday seasons, including Thanksgiving and gratitude, plus a couple episodes in December during Advent, and possibly even another New Year-themed episode. So I guess that means I should say we'll resume our time in Exodus with the Israelites and their journey to Mount Sinai by picking back up where we left off today, but not until January of 2024. Right now that seems to be so far away, but I'm sure it will be here before we know it, am I right? Goodness. In the meantime, though, this means that you all have plenty of time to catch up if you're behind in any way, my Bible study partners. Okay, one more thing before you leave. I just wanted to point out something you may or may not have noticed already. In each episode's show notes I place on my mfaring.com website, I always feature a verse image related to the content of that particular study time. These are a great resource to help you if you're trying to memorize scripture and even to serve as reminders of what we have studied in each particular podcast. As always, head on over to the mfaring.com website for all things related to each show, including these verse images, of course. (laughs) I do hope they're as helpful to you as they are to me. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. <laughs>